Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer envisions a world that embraces love as a guiding principle and animating force for our lives, a powerful love that helps us live in sacred relationship with ourselves, others, and the natural world. Learn more by visiting Fetzer.org. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being's Unheard Cuts. Up next, my unedited conversation with writer and philosopher Alain de Botton. There's a shorter, produced version of this at Apple Podcasts or wherever you like to listen. Hello. <clears throat> Hi, Krista. Good what, to... a, what a pleasure and an honor. You too. It's great to speak with you again. I don't know if you remember our conversation Of course. Several it years was a landmark in, in my life. Oh, well, excellent. I'm glad to hear that. Um, of course. Yeah, I'm very happy to have you at the other end of the, micro, uh, the conversation well, I'm, again. I'm so pleased. Yeah. So pleased. And I've loved following what you're doing with the School of Life. I'm actually speaking at the School of Life in Australia this summer. Are um, you great? And I oh, just, you know, I hear. I feel like you, it's making such a mark, and I'm really grateful, actually, for what you're doing. Oh, that's so nice. Yeah. Thank, you. <laughs> Thank you. And these are these are troubled days in your republic. Indeed, they are, and you, it's, you in yours as well. <laughs> well, yes, I know, but you, you yeah. make us now look like a sideshow. <laughs> I know, I know. Well, You've beaten us to it. But I, but you know, I think. Um, well, actually, I. Let's talk. Let's start talking on the air because I'm afraid we might venture into oh, some no, territory course, that we want no, no, to capture. Course, course we, yeah, well, maybe we shouldn't. But um, anyway, well, well I'm, no. I'm ready when you are. Okay. All right. No, I just I I actually don't I, I don't think it's completely unrelated to what we're speaking about okay. today. Okay. In terms yeah. of okay. in terms of uh, you know human dynamics, purely sure. human dynamics under the no, surface, it's... which turn up on the political surface, looking like of course you know, pretending to be something else. <laughs> Yes, that's very interesting. Yeah. Um, just, just so I know, is yeah. this going out uh, soon or in a long time? Yes, or just, actually, just so I get a kind of sense of a actually time Actually, this one we are planning to turn around, turn around pretty quickly. Uh, I think, okay. now I'm just looking behind the glass. I think we're doing it for Valentine's Day, right? Oh my goodness. That right? Okay, that makes okay. sense. Yeah, so yeah. very soon. Okay, um, right. Okay. Yeah. So yeah. we're excited. Okay, good. No, it just also gives me a sense of, you know, how topical or not to, to be. In yeah, that well, you know, we, we try to do everything... Um, that we, we try to step back from the, you know what is yeah. just merely no. momentary anyway. So of course. Of course. Um, let's have a big conversation and yeah. Yeah. you know don't worry one much too much okay. one way. Although these okay. things you know these these uh, the, no, like, the I mean, crises in, way it's, it's, in our you know, republic people, are going to be with us yeah. for a while too. <laughs> yeah, well that's true. But but people yeah. get fed up and and it's good to give them something exactly. else. <laughs> well, yes, yeah. Well, what happened? And that's what you do so well. Well, thank you. I mean, what happened twenty minutes ago is going to be covered in a million ways, and and yeah, yeah. We, people want yeah. people. I mean, that's what you're working at too, kind of elevating, yeah, exactly. um, exactly. and also deepening. Um, okay, so Chris, are we good? All right, great. Then let's just let's just dig in. So, so we did speak a few years ago, but on a on a very different topic, and I'm um, really uh, uh, excited to be speaking you, with you about this subject, which is um, so close to every life. And uh, I, you know, as I so as I've prepared for this, I, I just have I realized that you've actually. I mean, I knew that you'd written the novel on love a long time ago, but you've really been consistently uh, attending to this subject and building your thoughts on it and your body of work on it, which is really interesting to me. I mean, you wrote on love at the age of 23, um, which is so young, and you were already thinking about this so deeply. I mean, there's 
I think this is the first line. Every fall into love involves the triumph of hope over knowledge. So I'm just kind of curious as we start about, um, you know, I always I always start my conversations, whatever we're talking about, about talking about the background of someone's childhood. And I know, you know, you you've you have spoken and written about your childhood as one that w- had a emotional deprivation, and there was a lot of trauma actually, and, and even exile in, in your in your parents' lives. But how, how do you you know what would you say about in the background of your life you know what you learned and internalized about love and marriage which made this at such a young age such a deep subject for you well i think that one of the things that parents nice parents try to keep from their children is that life is in many ways bleak lonely and um Brief. And I think these are the sort of horrific truths that children are shielded from. Mm-hmm. What we call a difficult childhood is, I think, one in which, for whatever reason, um, some of these adult insights uh, come a little bit too early, perhaps when one's not ready. Mm-hmm. And I think that anyone who's had that sort of a childhood will react to it in some way. Um, there will be an element of needing to you know, go back and redeem something, atone for something, mm-hmm. um, patch something up. And for me, you know, I became a writer, I think, in order to try and understand emotional life in a way that when I was a child, um, you know, emotional emotions really perturbed me. And Mm. I think that, you know, when people say, you know, why did you become a writer, an intellectual, etc? You know, I can almost just have a very basic answer, which is it was a way of coping. Um, I'm one of those people. And, you know, there are many of us out there. Yes, who, and I'm one of them when too. <laughs> right, yeah. well, you know, when something goes wrong, um, what's the first thing they want to do? They want to be alone, uh, probably with some uh, paper and a pen, mm. and write stuff down. And yeah. they may not even want to have you know any aspirations to publish or anything. It's just the most soothing, calming, redeeming thing you can do. And and that for me was the origin of writing. Long before there were mm-hmm. uh, was such a thing as a book or a publisher, there was the need to write because writing was consoling, calming. By interpreting emotions, I got a handle on them and they seemed less threatening, less uh, alienating, less hurtful. Yes. And... and um I think you know there there are also many 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 of us which which actually is a is a is a logical implication of the way you write about the reality of love um who had those difficult painful who had who had confusing and troubling experiences first experiences of what love and marriage mean um and yet somehow um and I think this gets at the larger con- context and point of the work you've done on this, the thinking you've done on it. it. It continues to fly in the face so that we almost kind of negate it and treat it as abnormal uh, in the face of this, the way we do love now as a feeling um, and as an ideal. Um, I, well, I mean, I think, yeah. you know, what, what, what's striking is that our idea of what love is um, our idea of what is normal in love is yeah. so not normal. It's so abnormal, and right. So abnormal. And so we castigate <laughs> ourselves for not right. having a normal love life, right. even though no one seems to have any of these. Or not you know, have been said, loved perfectly. Uh, right, right, right. So we have this ideal mm-hmm. of what love is. And then these very, very unhelpful narratives um, mm-hmm. of love, and they're in everywhere. You know, they're in movies and songs. And we mustn't blame songs and movies too much. But but we have a socialized account 
of what a relationship might be like, which is simply hugely at variance mm -hmm. from most people's experience. So most people experience themselves as in one way or another freakish. In some way or other, they feel, what's wrong with me? My love story is supposed to be like this. In fact, it's like that. Right. And I think that art, culture, has an enormous role to play in nuancing the, the stories that we tell ourselves about who we are and introducing complexity and ultimately compassion mm -hmm. into these stories. Because let's not forget that a a caricatured story is, at the end of the day, an ungenerous story, a story that's mm -hmm. lacking in compassion. Mm -hmm. you know, if you say, uh, you know, they met, they were happy, and, uh, you know, they lived their whole life in bliss, and that that seemed to be the normal narrative of when Jack meets Jill, you know, that's going to be strangely quite a punitive story. If you say to people, look, love is a, a you know, a painful, poignant touching attempt by two flawed individuals to try and meet each other's needs in situations of gross uncertainty and ignorance about who they are and who the other person is, but, you know, we're going to do our best. Um, that's a much more generous starting point. So the acceptance of ourselves as flawed creatures seems to me what love really is. Um, you know, it's interesting because I think we're wrestling in our culture with two contrasting ideas of what love is. The, the first view is that love is an emotion that is generated by perfection, by something that's amazing, by a very beautiful mm. person, an exciting person, an intelligent person. And then there's another view that love is really the emotion that you bring to bear on what is flawed and what is imperfect, um, that it, you know, love is at its most necessary when we are weak, when we feel incomplete, and we must show love to one another at those points. So mm -hmm. we've got these two contrasting stories, and we get them muddled. Well, and and, and, and also, I mean, and you know, I feel like this this should be obvious, but you 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 just touched on art and culture and how that could help us complexify our understanding of this, but. Um, but you also write about, and I think a lot about how we uh, internalize so many of our images of how a romance should develop and what it is to fall in love from, understandably, we internalize images from movies and wonderful TV shows and, and beautiful love songs. Um, and one of the things you point out um, uh uh, you know, about, I don't know, I don't know, when Harry met Sally or four weddings and a funeral, one of the things that's wrong with all of that is that they, th 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 a lot of these just take us up to the wedding. They, they, they take us, they take us through the falling. Um, and, and, and don't see that. I think you've written somewhere, you said a, a wiser culture than ours would recognize that the start of a relationship is not the high point that romantic art assumes. It is merely the first step of a far longer more ambivalent and yet quietly audacious journey on which we should direct our intelligence and scrutiny. <laughs> That's right. I mean, we are, we are strangely obsessed by um, the run-up to love. And we, what we yeah. call a love story is really just the beginning of love story, but we'd leave that out. Mm -hmm. And so, but, you know, most of us, we're interested in long-term relationships. We're not just interested in the moment that gets us into love. We're interested in the survival of love That's over time. That's what we're longing for. Yeah. That's what we're longing for. Yeah. And yet, of course, that is the very tricky bit that most, that gets very left out of art. I mean, you can count on one hand how many movies every decade um, right. are dealing with the non-dramatic. And let's face it, often it is non-dramatic. It may be full of silent humiliation and pain, but it's broadly speaking non-dramatic. Um, movies and stories that, that latch onto those uh, uh, bits of life are very few and far between. Mm -hmm. And, you know, to give you one example, I don't know if... Uh, 
you saw Richard Linklater's Before Midnight. Um, but that for me is one of the think. few recent examples uh-huh. of a really great movie that looks at what happens to a couple long term. And it's not without tenderness and love, but it's also full of, well, just, you know, it's it's human all too human. It's it's at times pretty frightening. Mm. Um, mm. But but we need to see representations of this because all of us know our own lives from the inside, but we know other people's lives only from what they choose to tell us. And generally, because they want to seem normal, they don't tell us very much. And so we right. end up feeling very isolated. Right, right. And I think one of the key jobs of culture is to de-isolate us um, and to give us evidence of what life is like for other people so that we can feel um, normal. You know, and you're right that, um, I mean, that's one way to maybe understand why um, why story, why, you know, say cinematic storytelling often, it's hard to do this because it doesn't have, it doesn't have a kind of dramatic external narrative arc. It's a lot of, I mean, a lot of what you are pointing at, the work of loving over a long span of time is inner work, right? <laughs> and and um, it'd be hard to film that. Um, but, you know, I'm very intrigued by how you talk about the ancient Greeks and their pedagogical view of love. That, yes, right? I mean, that's, yes. that's fascinating because mm-hmm. um, one of the greatest insults that you can level at a lover in the modern world, apparently, is to say, I want to change you. Yeah. And one of the most, you know, offended moments in relationships are when somebody says, are you trying to change me? And this yeah. is seen as yeah. absolutely the enemy of love. It's like, my goodness, I thought you loved me, but now I've realized you're trying to change me. So that means you don't love me. And this, look, it, it sounds very normal in our own time. It would have sounded extremely unusual to the ancient Greeks. The ancient Greeks had a view of love, which was essentially based around education. That what love means, love is a benevolent process whereby two people try to teach each other how to become the best versions of themselves. Now you say somewhere they try, they're, they're committed to increasing the admirable characteristics that they, possess, right. that the, right. that they possess and the other person possesses. And, and that what love Which is... Which is a twist on changing you. I mean, it is... <laughs> it is yes, no, no, absolutely. Right. Yeah. I mean, you know, yeah. and so the Greek view is you mm-hmm. fall in love with the perfect things in another person, mm-hmm. with the accomplished, beautiful things. But then the work of love is to try and make more and more of a person accomplished, perfect, mm-hmm. virtuous. That's what love aims at. So love explicitly aims at change. Now, you know... Many relationships and their troubles could be analysed as attempts by both people to teach one another things, but failing to do so miserably. So many, many what we call arguments are really lessons that have gone terribly wrong. And they go wrong really for two reasons. Firstly, because the so-called, in inverted commas, teacher, the person in the teaching role, is so panicked, so anxious. And they're anxious because at the back of their minds they think, I mean, the, the haunting thought that makes people lose their tempers in relationship is, is basically the fear that they've married an idiot, that yeah. they've ruined their life yeah. by being in the presence of someone who just right. refuses to understand. So they lose their temper. And also and so just those and... terrifying moments when you when you start to understand. I mean, what was it? What was that line from On Love? Uh, every lo- every fall into love invites the false triumph of hope over knowledge. And as the knowledge becomes more front and center, um, that kind of... You're right. It's that it, the 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 the, um, the deterioration of that ideal is can be terrifying. That's yeah. right. And so yeah. you so people are trying to teach one another things, but mm-hmm. with impatience, with mm-hmm. anger, with mm-hmm. a sense of bitterness, with and fear they can't the even other, own own up to probably. 
That's mm, right. Yeah. That's right. And so they're terrible ambassadors mm. for their feeling. Mm. They're making a mess of it. Mm. And meanwhile, the person on the other side in the so-called uh, pupil role, in the student role, um, is you know beset by this idea that it, it's an insult. The whole game is an insult because it involves an attempt to change. So both people are incredibly you know, twitchy and angry and, and tense about the whole situation. And the lesson goes nowhere. And what you end up with is, you know, bitterness on both sides. Yeah. You get the person who, rather than attempting to teach gently, just attempts to impose their will uh, in a kind of managerial and strict way. And the other person just runs away and shirks and just doesn't want to listen and, you know, just shuts their ears. So, you know, yeah. that's what that's what relationships so often end up as, failed teaching moments. You know, there's um your your most recent book on this subject is The Course of Love, which is a novel. But it's a it's a novel that actually I feel you kind of weave a pedagogical narrator voice into it. Do, do you think that's fair? That's Wo- right. Woven absolutely. In, woven into the into the narrative. And um you know, and so there's a there's a this is an example of what you're describing. And you know, you, you say at one point uh, this is the relationship between um, Robbie and why am I? What's the Kirsten? And um, you know, you said at one point their relationship is secretly yet mutually marked by a project of improvement, which I think we all recognize. Um, so in fact, we do have have this this pedagogical instinct, but we don't think we're supposed to, as you say. And then there's this moment where you say, after the dinner party, Robbie is sincerely trying to bring about an evolution in the personality of the wife he loves. But his chosen technique is distinctive, to call Kirsten materialistic, to shout at her, and then later to slam two doors. <laughs> That's right. And of course, by the time we all you recognize humiliate, that scene. <laughs> by the time we've humiliated someone, they're yeah. not going to learn anything. Yeah. The only conditions, as we know with children, the only conditions under which anyone learns are conditions of incredible sweetness, tenderness, patience. That's how we learn. But yeah. the problem is that, you know, the failures of our relationships have made us so anxious that we can't be the teachers we should be. And therefore, some often, you know, genuine, legitimate things that we want to get across um, are just, you know, come across as, as insults, as attempts to wound and are therefore rejected. And, you know, the, the arteries of the relationship start to fur. Yeah. Someone recently said to me, uh, I'm curious about how you respond to this, um, you know, it was a wise Jewish mother who had said to them, um, men marry women with the intention that they, with the idea that they will stay the same. Women marry men with the idea that they will change, which is obviously a huge generalization, but it, oh gosh, it made a lot of sense to me, even in terms of my I mean, own I, life and in terms of what I see around me. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I would I would argue that both genders want to change mm-hmm. one another, and they both have an idea of who the lover should be. Yeah. Um, right. And I think, you know, a useful exercise that sometimes psychologists, uh, uh, you know, level at, at feuding couples is they say things like, if you could accept that your partner would never change, how would you feel about that? And the idea is to bring about a kind mm. of forgiveness mm. because so often what gets us both, you know, feeling desperate but also excited about change is the sense it could be different. Sometimes pessimism, a certain degree of pessimism can be a friend of love. Yeah. Um, you know, one, once we accept that actually it's really very hard for people to be another way, um, we're sometimes readier. You know, we, we don't need people to be perfect is the, the good news. We just need people to be able to explain their imperfections to us in good time before they've hurt us too much 
with mm. them mm. and uh, and with a certain degree of humility mm. um, that that's already an enormous it's step a lot to ask uh, but it's forward. so it's also it sounds reasonable right i mean if we could really have that in our minds um early enough on in a relationship mm. that's right um mm-hmm. and and you know almost from the first date yeah. uh you know the, my view of what one should talk about on a first date is not showing off and not uh, you know, putting forward one's accomplishments, but almost quite the opposite. It, you know, one should say, "Well, how are you crazy? I, I'm crazy like this." Right. Um, you know, and there should be a mutual acceptance that <laughs> two damaged people are trying to get together because right. pretty much all of us. There are a few. There are a few totally healthy people, but pretty much all of us reach dating age with you know some scars, some wounds, mm-hmm. and because the more we know about them, and the more we're able to introduce the topic in a kind of non-pejorative, non-agitated way. Um, the more success we'll have. But we, we, we're operating, you know, it's not a coincidence that people in the early days of love call each other angel. Um, mm. You know, we've got this sort of deity, this sort of secularized deity um, who is our lover, um, who then turns out you know, not to be such a thing. And, mm. and we rage and rant. I mean, look, a lot of this comes from uh, ideas that we have in childhood. I mean, when we're children, um, our parents can sometimes seem like supernatural creatures. They're, they have powers way beyond anything we have. They know all sorts of things, etc. And sometimes we we bring to adult relationships some of the same hope yeah. that a young child might have had of their parent. And of course, an adult adult relationship can't be like that. It's got to accept that the person across the table uh, or on the other side of the bed is just human, which means full of flaws, fears, (laughs) etc., and not some sort of superhuman. Yeah, and I think that that question that you you said could be a standard question on an early date, and how are you crazy? It's There's also something um, that you're getting at that it almost seems like we we must be hardwired to do this, although, you know, one of the wonderful things we're learning in the 21st century is that we can change our brains. But, that, that you know, a way you say it in, in On Love, in a scene in On Love is, oh, actually, just look at it, you know, that, that you know, boy meets girl and... And they, you start to you start to be enamored in in, in details of this of this uh, of this new person and find things in common. Like I don't know, both of us had two large freckles on the toe of the left foot. And then you wrote, you know, instinctively, and this happens very quickly. He teases out an entire personality from the details. But also, I you know, also what I know from my own life is you tend to. Uh, and I think we, 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 when we fall in love with another person, we magnify in our minds those things that are immediately enrapturing um, and, and craft our idea of the other person almost exclusively around those wonderful qualities, which is not fair to them or to us. <laughs> That's right, and we, you know we we feel in a way that we know them already, and mm. we have we impose on them. And of an course, idea. we don't. Right? No, we right. don't. We don't. Right. Which you know also explains another phenomenon that I'm fascinated by. You probably would have noticed in in both novels um, is the phenomenon of of being in a sulk, of sulking, because mm. sulking is is a fascinating situation which takes you right into the heart of certain romantic delusions. Because what's fascinating about sulking is that 
we don't sulk with everybody. We only get into sulks with people that we feel should understand us, mm. but rather unforgivably <laughs> haven't understood us. So in oh, other words, yeah. it's when it's when we are in love with people and mm. they're in love with us that we take particular offence yes. when they get things wrong. Because the, the kind of the governing assumption of the relationship is this person should know what's in my mind, ideally, without me needing to tell them. Yes. If I need to spell this out to you, you don't love me. Um, and that's why, you know, you'll go into the bathroom, bolt the door, and when your partner says, you know, is anything wrong, you'll go, mm-mm. And the reason is that they should be able to read through the bathroom yeah. panel into your soul and know what's wrong. And that's <laughs> such an extraordinary demand. And, so you know, unfair, we, yes. <laughs> we, we see it in children. I mean, this is how little children behave. They, they literally think that their parents can read their minds. Um, it takes a long time to realise that the only way that one person can really learn about another is if it's explained to them, preferably using words, yes, quite use calm your ones. words, <laughs> which we say. <laughs> but to you know, children, people, yes. when people always say communicate, I mean, yeah. you know, we have to be generous towards the reasons why we don't, and we don't because we're we're mm-hmm. operating with this mad idea mm-hmm. that um, true love means intuitive understanding. And you know, I go crazy when people say things like, "I met someone. You know, the, the loveliest thing is they understood me without me needing to speak." <laughs> you know, and I thought yeah. oh, so many alarm bells go off when yeah. I hear that because I think, yeah. okay, well, good luck for you know. Good luck in this instance. But, mm-hmm. you know, if you guys get together, that's not going to go on forever. Mm-hmm. No one can, you know, intuitively understand another beyond a quite limited range of topics. Right. Your, your children, how old are your children? They're still pretty young, right? Are they? Uh, yeah, they're 10 and 12. Oh, OK. Yeah. So, I, you know, as the as the, now that I have young adult children, it's, you know, you, you when you hear that coming out of the mouth of your 21-year-old, you know, he should under he he should know. <laughs> he right. should just know. Right. <laughs> and you just. But, but I also I also what I also know is that uh, grasping this, what you're talking about, is it's work. It's it is the work of life, right? It is. The it's work the work of, of love, up. and you know. But it's interesting that 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 you know you're mentioning your your children and children generally because I think. There is. It sounds eerie, but I think that one of the most, one of the kindest things that we can do with our lover mm. is to see them as children, and not not to infantilize them. But when we're dealing with children as as parents, as adults, we're incredibly generous in the way we interpret their behaviour. And if a child says, if you walk home and a child says, "I hate you," right, you immediately go, "Okay." It's, that's not quite true. Probably they're tired, right. they're hungry, right. something's gone wrong, someone, their tooth hurts, something. We're looking around for a benevolent interpretation that can just shave off some of the more, you know, depressing, dispiriting aspects of their behavior. Yeah. And we do this naturally with children. And yet we do it so seldom with adults. You know, when an adult meets an adult um, and they say, you know, I don't know, I've not had a good day, leave me alone. Um, rather than saying, okay, I'm, I'm just going to go behind the facade of yeah. this slightly depressing and understand comment. that that's actually not about me. That's about what's going on inside right. them today. Right, right, right. Exactly. We don't do that. We mm-hmm. take it all completely personally. And so I think you know the work of love um, is to try when we can manage it. We can't always to go behind the front of this rather you know depressing, challenging behavior and try and ask where it might have come from. I mean, this is. You know, this is traditionally in Christianity. This is what you know God does. Um, mm. God mm. looks behind the, the the dispiriting surface of someone. You know, someone is an alcoholic, uh, a prostitute, etc. And ordinary people shun them. 
but you know god's love looks behind the scenes and we find this in in literature too think of dostoevsky's characters you know they are often very damaged people gamblers alcoholics mm. uh, murderers you know but the the skill and the love of the novelist is to take you behind and show you what lies behind that behavior and look I, I, we can't do it every day but at least to know that that is an important part of what love is what love should be love is doing that work to ask oneself where's this come from where's this rather aggressive pained non-communicative unpleasant mm. behavior come from if we can do that we're on the road to to knowing a little bit about what love really is i think mm. you know i'd love to talk about your you, you used this word pessimism a little while ago and i'd i'd love to i'd love to dig into that a little bit more and Mm, what what you're what you're really talking about is 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 this is 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 re, is being reality based, um, as opposed to to being ideal based. Um, you, there's a beautiful video that I've I've shared that's out there called the I think it's the darkest truth about love. Um, is that right? That's the title, isn't it? Yes, that's right. From exactly. School, yes, School of made life. that for YouTube. And yeah. I'd like to talk through you know some of these core truths um, that fly in the face of this way we go around behaving and that movies have taught us to behave and that possibly right. our parents taught us to behave. These yes. core truths that can put us on the foundation of reality. Um, yes. I mean, that's very useful. We mm -hmm. could chisel them in granite. I mean, look, what one of the first important truths is you're crazy. Um, not you, as it were, all of us. That all right. of us are deeply damaged people. Right. The great enemy of love, good relationships, good friendships is self-righteousness. Mm. And self-righteousness mm. is rooted in a sense of our own purity. If we start by accepting that, of course, we're, you know, only just holding it together and in many ways really quite challenging people. You know, I, I think if somebody thinks that they're easy to live with, they're by definition, going to be pretty hard and don't have much of an understanding of themselves. I think you know there's a certain wisdom that begins by knowing that, of course, you, like everyone else, is pretty difficult. And mm -hmm. of course, this knowledge is very shielded from us. You know, our parents don't tell us, our ex-lovers, right. they knew it, but they couldn't be bothered to tell us. They, they you know, sacked us without... Well, by the time they it. tell us, we're, we're dismissing what they say anyway. Well, that's right. That's right. Exactly. <laughs> or oh, they were too sweet. You know, they didn't, they didn't want to reform us. They, they just wanted to get out. Mm. So they didn't tell us. And our friends don't tell us because they just want a pleasant evening with us. So mm. we're left mm. with mm. A, a sort of, um, a, you know, a bubble of ignorance about our own natures. And often, you know, you, you can be way into your... 40s before you're starting to get a sense of, oh, well, maybe, yeah. you know, maybe some of the problem is in me. Because, of course, you know, it's so often, it's so intuitive to, to think that, of course, it's it's the other person. Um, so to begin with that sense of, you know, for whatever reason, things to do with childhood and development, etc., I'm quite tricky in, in these ways. That's a very important starting point for being good at love. Mm. Um, the other thing, of course, is to realize that uh, anyone that we could get together with is also going to be deeply flawed, uh, that there is no such thing as a perfect person. And I think the essence of romantic longing is this belief that someone out there, maybe you saw them at the airport check-in line, maybe you, you crossed them in the supermarket, maybe you saw them when you were swiping left or right on, on the app, but that somewhere out there, there is this extraordinary feature called the right person. And that the right person is going to be someone who understands you, who's on your side, who is... Uh, you know, extremely benevolent towards everything that you are and feel and want, um, and that and that they're out there, and that 
you know, so often we blame our lovers, we don't blame our view of love. And mm -hmm. so we keep sacking mm -hmm. our lovers and blowing up relationships right. or in pursuit of this idea of love, which actually has no basis in reality. It's simply not rooted in anything yeah. we know. This I mean, right person, this creature does not exist. And, and is in fact the enemy of good enough relationships. Mm. You know, I'm, mm -hmm. I'm really fond of um, Donald Winnicott, this English psychoanalyst's term, which he first used in relation to parenting, that, you know, what we should be aiming for is not perfection, but a good enough uh, situation. Mm -hmm. And it's wonderfully downbeat. You know, no one would go, you know, what, what, are, your, what are your hopes this year? Well, I, I just want to have a good enough relationship. People would go, oh, I'm sorry, your life's so grim. <laughs> but you want to go, no, that's right. really good. Uh, that's <laughs> that's kind of, for a human, that's brilliant. Yeah. And uh, that's, that's, I think, the attitude we should have. Yeah. Um, you, you know, one of the, at this darkest truth about love, you know, you say the idea of love, in fact, distracts us from existential loneliness. Um, you know, you are irredeemably alone. You will not be understood. Um, but also behind that is the, right, these are, as you say, the, these are dark truths, but it's also a relief uh, because as truth always ultimately is, if, when we, if we can hear it, um, um, that again, that is the work of life. Is to reckon yes, that's with, right. I mean, with, you, you know, what goes on inside us. I think one of the you know one of the greatest sorrows we sometimes have in in love is the feeling that our lover doesn't understand parts of us, mm -hmm. and to this sorrow, and it is a sorrow. Let's not make any bones about it. Mm -hmm. To this sorrow, we add another layer of sorrow, which is the feeling that this sorrow is unnecessary. And so we say, mm -hmm. you know, they don't understand my taste in movies, or there's a moment when I'm chatting to my mother and they don't understand how I feel, or they don't understand some of my aspirations about work, etc. And we we blame them, and we we see, and of course there are always going to be people who do understand those sides of us, but there is no one who can understand every side of us and feel in total congruity with our own feelings. And so, you know. At, at many points in life, um, we're simply not going to be understood. And a certain kind of bravery, a certain heroic acceptance of loneliness seems to be one of the key ingredients to being able to form a good relationship. That if you expect that, interesting? that your lover must understand, yeah. of course, yeah. if, you are, if you expect that your lover must understand everything mm -hmm. about you, um, you will be, well, you'll be furious pretty, pretty much all the time. Mm -hmm. um, it, you know, th there are islands and moments of beautiful connection. Um, but we have to be modest about how often they're going to happen. I think, you know, if you're lonely with only, I don't know, 40% of your life, that's really good going. Um, you may not want to you know, be lonely with over 50%, but, mm -hmm. you know, I, I think, you know, there's certainly a sizable minority share of your life, which you're going to have to endure without echo from those you love. Yeah. You know, I, I, I debated over whether I would, would discuss this with you, but I, I think I will. Like, I'm single right now and have been for a few years, and, and it's actually been a great joy. Um, you know, not that I think necessarily, you know, not that I think I, I will be single forever or want to be single forever, although actually I think I've, I think I would be all right if I were, you know, which is a real watershed. Um, and I'm, you know, and, and also what this part of this chapter of life has taught me to really enjoy more deeply and take more seriously all the many forms of love in life, aside from just, you know, the, the romantic love or being coupled. 
Um, well, it's do, funny because, you know, just as you were saying, yeah. yes, I mean, just as you were saying, I'm single, I, I was about to say you're not. Um, mm. no, because, you know, we, right. have to, we have to look at what this idea of singlehood is. I mean, mm-hmm. we've, we've got this word single, which captures somebody but who's I have not so much you know, got a long-term relationship. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. And, and, you know, another way of looking at love is connection. Um, mm-hmm. We're all the time, you know, we are hardwired to seek connections with, with others. And, and that is, in a sense, at a kind of granular level, what love is. Love is, is connection. Yeah. And we can connect in all sorts of ways that go far beyond, you know, the understanding of, of, of a relationship. So you can connect with a book, with a long dead person, mm. uh, with mm. an idea. Mm. These are all forms of connection. And insofar mm. as one is alive and one is in you know, buoyant, relatively buoyant spirit some of the time, it's because we are connected. And, um, you know, we can we can take pride in, in how flexible our minds ultimately are about where that connection is coming. We don't necessarily need a relationship. And I think it's also worth saying that, you know, for some people, relationships are not necessarily the place where they encounter their best selves. Yeah, um, yeah. That, that actually, you know, the person that they are in a relationship is not the person that they want to be um, or that they can be in other areas of, of, of life, that they feel that there's, there are other possibilities that they'd like to explore. Mm-hmm. And, um, I, you know, I think getting into a relationship with someone, asking someone to be with you is a pretty cruel thing to do to someone <laughs> that you love and, and admire and respect because the job is the job is so hard. Mm. Most people fail at it. You know, when, yeah. when you ask someone to marry you, for example, you're asking someone to, you know, be your chauffeur, co-host, uh, sexual partner, co-parent, mm. fellow accountant, you know, mop the kitchen floor together, et cetera, et cetera. And on and on the list goes, no wonder that we fail at some of the tasks and, and get irate with one another. It's a, it's a burden. And I think sometimes, you know, the older I get, sometimes I think, one of the nicest things you can do to someone that you really admire is leave them alone. Just, just let them go. Let them be. You know, don't, don't impose your, yourself on them because, um, because you're challenging. I, you know, I, I'm glad we, I'm glad we walked into this territory because it, um, everything you're writing and thinking about love, um, is really about the human enterprise, right? And it's really about growing up as a human being. Uh, or aspiring to do that through the course of one's life. And so, and what that means, you know, one of the things that means is that that this conversation um, is open to people wherever they are in terms of what their love life is, right? I mean, that we are, this is a path we're all on. And that's right. With the and, many and I think, forms you know, of love and growing up in our lives. That's right. And, you know, I think growing up, I mean, look, let's be honest here. Growing up sounds horrible. It sounds really dull. Um, One of the most awful words in the language is maturity. That sounds horrible. I mean, one of my incidental goals is to try and slightly rehabilitate and lend new prestige to maturity. Because I think one of the things that we must all strive for is to try and be mature. We'll never quite get there, but it's a wonderful goal. Um, And of course, when it comes to emotional life, um, we're given so little encouragement to try and get there. You know, we we insist on finding. This is something that my, you know, in a way my, the, the new novel, The Course of Love, is really all about this. It's it's about two people who realize ultimately that love is not just a feeling, an emotion, an intensity of of heart. It's it's actually a skill, and it's a skill that, and this sounds very odd, that can be learned. And and it sounds bizarre. I mean, the idea of having to go to school to learn love, it just, you know, everything about us, and, and we live in a romantic age, an age that mm, believes mm. in the reign of feeling 
I mean, we, we believe in training to become a, a pilot or a brain surgeon. But if someone said, I'm going to train to be a better lover, I mean, you, you'd think it was eerie. Um, and, and yet, of course, that is precisely the sort of training mm-hmm. we need. And, and oddly, and it sounds, well, as we put it, so unromantic, but there are, there are things we know about why couples break up, about what can help a relationship, etc. These things are not mysterious. No. You know, for example... One of the key things that we learn um, is that we should we can, should apply intelligence to this aspect of our life, which is so exactly, essential. Exactly. Just we as we to, apply intelligence to our other disciplines and our other experiences. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. I mean, one of the one of the basic things that you learn um, is that when somebody says, "I've gone off my lover," let's say somebody, let's say a, part, a, a relationship has cooled sexually, we're taught by our culture to think, well, that's just the waning of passion. It's just one of those mysterious things. It's like the sort of removal of some divine force. And there's not much to do other than, you know, watch TV. And there's nothing much you can do. And of course, what immediately happens if you talk to a, a psychologist around this is that they will tend to say that the decline in desire uh, has its roots in anger that almost certainly mm. the person that you no longer desire, you're angry with them. Now, mm. why are you angry with them? Because they've let you down. And they've let you down in ways that you haven't been able necessarily to even acknowledge yourself, let alone convey to them in a form that they can understand. And therefore, the channels of feeling have become damned. And without understanding quite why, the thought of them touching you has become repulsive. Mm. And you just you just want to read a book. And, you know, to, to know, mm. you know, that, that the skill of knowing, okay, Maybe it's not that you've lost feeling. Maybe it's you're furious, but you've slightly forgotten why, because you were injured, not by a large thing, but by a small thing. Because when we're in love, we're all quite defenseless. And so we get hurt by very minor things. It's things that seem very minor. And then we tell ourselves, well, I'm I'm a serious adult. How could I be hurt by the fact that, you know, he or she forgot to, I don't know, ask how my day was or hasn't, you know, checked my toenail for a bruise or something? You know, we think, oh, I'm I'm beyond all that. But of course, we're not when it comes to love. We're, We're big and brave people in the outside world. But in love, we're you know, we've got the defencelessness of, of children and yet we don't face up to that and therefore we get um, you know, defensive and cold and avoidant around our emotions which we, we can't convey to the other person. So that's just, you know, it's one example of, yeah. uh, you know, the curriculum we should all have if we sat down and, and took a course in love. Well, and I also, I also think a lot about how the language and vocabulary we have around this is so impoverishing and it actually points us in the wrong direction. I mean, especially the language of falling, right? I mean, that is the way, that is always the word we use, falling in love, falling out of love. There's there's no intentionality, there's no agency in that. I mean, I think a lot about how the Greeks you know, had have different words. We we also collapse all of it into this these four letters in English and there, you know, but in other languages there's eros, there's agape, there's philia, there's there's meta in poly. I, I also like how you you say there's one word but there are two aspects of it and, 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 and these are being loved, which is often what we talk about, what we really mean when we say what we're looking for, right? And That's then right. there's loving. 
That's right, and the, 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 the crucial difference is mass between them, and one's a lot tougher than the other. Yeah. And, um, and generally, right. we're, we're much keener on being loved mm-hmm. than on extending love. And, and, um, but, you know, it's interesting what you're saying about falling in love, because <sighs> you're absolutely right that we've, we've got this notion that it's a sort of mysterious state. We don't understand why. So there's the idea, you know, I walked into the bar, there they were, I fell in love. <laughs> I fell, you know, yeah. it, was a light, it was a lightning bolt. And again, <laughs> you know, let's listen to what we've learned over the last few decades, um, longer than that, let's say the last hundred years, we've really started to understand that, and it's such a basic, you know, it's psychology 101, um, but one of the most basic insights is the way that we love as adults is very shaped by the way we learnt to love as children. Mm. And that when we, whereas we tell ourselves that what we seek in love is happiness, really what we seek in our relations, very relationships very often is familiarity, mm. a sense of recreating a tone of love that we knew as children. And unfortunately for almost all of us, the kind of love that we knew as children was not pure, uh, was not purely focused on on happiness and contentment. It contained within it some, you know, pretty interesting and at times pretty damaged dynamics, mm-hmm. which very often we seek again to recreate in uh, the loves of adulthood. So you'll often get people who you know, meet each other, and then they'll say something like, "Well, they're really, you know, he was a really nice guy. She was, she was wonderful. Um, but unfortunately, I don't know, it just didn't feel right. I didn't really, yeah. you know, they weren't that exciting. And really, what we're saying is, probably our unconscious is saying, I didn't sense that they were messed up enough, that they were trouble enough to appeal to the mm-hmm. sides of my character that need love to come." connected up with certain forms of suffering. I didn't think that they were going to make me suffer in the ways I need to suffer in order to feel that love is real. Now, this sounds pretty strange and pretty challenging, but all of us, um, I think, do carry within us um, a sort of... We're not free to love just anyone. We we have love maps, you know, and, and, and not, not everybody is on the terrain. So, and, and I think this is one of the most interesting things about love. And we, we say things like, well, I, li- I like them tall, or I, they need to have green eyes, or I like <laughs> them when they're a musician or something. But, but dig beneath that, it's the psychology of our partners that are so fascinating, you know, our criteria. And often those criteria require difficulty. We don't mm-hmm. feel it's real until and unless we feel a certain kind of resistance to some of our more consciously determined goals in love. Right, because because unfortunately all most of that is happening at the unconscious level as well. That's right. And we you know mm-hmm. we don't begin to understand um, our own pathway yeah. uh, to love. Yeah. How did we like come love how map. did we come to love mm-hmm. you know I you know I mean we, we you know we all know people who will keep falling in love with really arduous characters. You think this person, you know, she's so beautiful, she's so intelligent, he's so nice, he's so this. And that. You know, why are they always going for this sort of situation? And we mm-hmm. think it's mysterious, and the truth is, it's not. It's just mm-hmm. a little bit complicated, and it involves understanding the evolution of love in somebody's uh, personality. But again, you say that to people, and they say, "Well, that sounds terribly unromantic." Well, good, <laughs> right, because right. the romantic Very is the bro- enemy of love. Right, right, right. But that's the cardinal rule, the breaking the rule of the way we do. That's it. right. If it if it sounds unromantic, mm-hmm. you're probably on the right track. Is my okay, rule. that's good. <laughs> um, I want to read your this definition of marriage that you you've written in a, in a few places. I, I think it's wonderful, and just talk about this. Marriage ends up as a hopeful generous, infinitely kind gamble taken by two people who don't, who don't know yet who they are or who the other might be. 
binding themselves to a future they cannot conceive of and have carefully avoided investigating. Well, yes, it's it's challenging. Um, and it's certainly contrary to the romantic view. But yes. again, um, this kind of realism or um, you know acceptance of complexity, I think, is ultimately the friend of love. I'm not... Um, you know, sometimes people say to me, oh, you know, is it just all about reducing our expectations and love isn't, isn't nice at all? And I say, no, it's more trying to find our way to our expectations. Um, our mm -hmm. expectations are not wrong. Our assumption of how we're going to get and reach our expectations are fatally flawed. We don't think we're going to have to do any work in mm -hmm. order to get there. And, and, and that's wrong. I mean, look, it's also worth adding, I don't believe that everybody should stay in exactly the relationship that they're in and that any relationship is worth sticking with and that in a way the fault is is always the fault of the lovers if it's not both lovers if, if it's not happy um you know there are legitimate reasons to leave a relationship and i think the moment to leave a relationship is when you can really you know if you ask yourself where are the problems in my love and my life coming from and if you can sincerely hand on heart point to the partner and go you know it's really them you know that the, the things that are difficult are really them then you should definitely leave but mm -hmm. if when you're really being honest if you ask yourself why am i in pain and you can't necessarily attribute all the sorrows that you're feeling to your lover, if you recognize that some of those things are perhaps endemic to existence or endemic to all human beings or something within yourself, then what you're doing is encountering the pain of life with another person, mm -hmm. but not necessarily because of another person. And therefore, probably on balance, you might stay because mm -hmm. you'll only encounter those same problems elsewhere after a lot of turmoil, angst, and probably cost. So that'd be the way I would separate the staying or the leaving of it. Yeah. There's, there's also this very poignant thing about us, this you point out that it, it's related to what you said a minute ago, that we kind of, we're, we are unconsciously looking for what feels familiar <clears throat> from our childhood. And the fact that, um, and this, I think that you stated this pointedly in this, in the New York Times piece, uh, why, you, why You Will Marry the Wrong Person, which got set, we'll talk about that, got such a, had such a huge readership. But we marry the wrong people because we don't associate being loved with feeling happy, which flies in the face of all the ideas we have, right? That it's, it's, it's this huge chasm between what we believe and, and, and how we actually function. And it's so sad. It's a sad thing about. Uh, that so many that that many of us had don't associate being loved with feeling happy, um, or or rather you know we associate it with with partial sorts of mm -hmm. uh, uh, you know happiness, but but also we want you know we're, we're drawn to certain sorts of trouble yeah. because that's how we first encountered love, and you know childhood is a long time, and we're very defenseless in childhood in front of the people who are around us, and so these things dig deep into our personalities. We're heavily imprinted, um, but I think. You know, I don't think that most of us ever really change our types, but what we can do is change the way we respond to the difficulties that our types create for us. Because often our types, we've learned to, to respond to our types in ways that we learnt in childhood. And therefore, they bear the imprint of an original immaturity, so that if somebody, you know, um, uh, is a little bit distant with us, our response is to sulk and withdraw, let's say. Um, whereas actually, 
you know, an adult response might be to say, look, I'm hurt and explain and, and account for it and, you know, have a communication around it. So um, we can learn or, you know, a, a, an early um, uh, response to a lover that we think is too flawed is to be quite humiliating towards them and attack them and be quite cruel, whereas actually we might learn the art of couching our uh, criticism in, you know, in gentler ways. So I think that there is a capacity. We all have a capacity to evolve. Um, mm -hmm. I don't think we can be radically rewired, but we can we can come to see that many of the ways in which we respond in love were formed in early childhood, before we really had a sense of what on earth was going on. And we're still continuing to use those first quite basic responses, you know, uh, retreat, attack, violent attack, uh, sulking retreat, etc. We, we still do that within the context of adult life, even though we're mature in lots of other areas. We're still kind of right. fighting the battles with the tools of childhood. Right. And one of the things we can do, I think, is just evolve those tools, you know, respond differently. You're, you'll still feel hurt, but maybe you can respond to that hurt in a slightly more adult way. You'll still, um, you know, get angry, but is there a way of channeling the anger in a more adult way? Because, you know, you're a big guy now, so you can do it in a different way. Um, and I think giving giving ourselves the credit that we can learn new techniques to deal with the feelings that we used to deal with in in such a in immature, such a childlike way, and and because we have that power, in fact, um, I mean that you know you say that that is why it, you conclude that the good news is it doesn't matter if we find we've married the wrong person. That in fact is not the greatest task um, or the most rewarding well, I mean, possible task. You know, it's, it's it. so. I, I the New York Times asked me to write this uh, this article about marriage, so I, I I ended up writing this piece, which which I titled "Why You Will Marry the Wrong Person." Yeah. And what I meant by that is um, that the person you'll marry will not be Mr. or Mrs. Right uh, as defined by romantic culture, and that the idea of rightness is in fact the error, um, mm -hmm. and that when you marry the wrong person, what you're really doing is marrying a human being. And that's fine, because that's all we are as well. And that's not a problem. So in fact, the wrong person's okay. Uh, and in fact, it's the right person who's the trouble one. The vision of the right person is the one that gives us so much grief mm. and sets us off on all sorts of, you know, chimerical journeys that, that lead nowhere. And, and, and you, you, you know, I think, I think, you know, you're making this argument that especially for Americans um, who like things to be clear. Um, and <laughs> you're making I, so this... If I can intrude, yes. I think, bless, bless your lovely country, um, yeah. I think you like things not so much to be clear, well, that as well, but also to be hopeful. To be hopeful, um, that's to, right. To be, right, right. Yeah. Yeah. And so you're... Which I, look, I agree with. I, I'm an American in this respect too, but mm -hmm. I think that true hope has to be grounded uh, on in... Pessimism, on pessimism, <laughs> on exactly, reality-based exactly. pessimism. So I, I call myself a cheerful pessimist, okay. you know, I think. And I think that there's sentimental optimism which ultimately leads to cynicism and despair. The yeah. flip side of sentimental optimism is, is cynicism and despair. But, and, but, and I think yeah. that we, yeah, sorry. Yeah, well, no, but for example, I mean, you, you know, you are in fact arguing, as you said before, some marriages are meant to end. And there's, you know, there's certainly reasons for marriages to end or to end marriages. But but you also point out this, this uh, con you know, this very contradictory fact that, um you know, well, one, well, there's, I don't know, maybe we'll go that later. But they, that, that, um, the, 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 the thing that's ultimately wrong with adultery as a, as a, just as an easy out to what's going wrong in the marriage is that it is based on the same idealism that 
that's, that certain ideas of marriage are based on that go wrong. That, that's right, in a way that you're just redirecting your hope elsewhere. And, um, and uh, Imagine this is the perfect one, right? This is the one person who won't, with whom you won't be, ever be lonely again, who will understand you completely. That's right. Mm-hmm. That's right. And so it's, um, you know, on and on the, uh, the cycles of, of hurt continue. Mm-hmm. Um, so we should, yeah, we should be careful. Mm. You know, something that's, uh, something else you name about marriage that I feel is not often enough just named is that, you know, you, we, we spoke a little while ago about children coming into a marriage and, and um and of course, children teach us so much. I mean, one thing you say that's beautiful, the children teach us that love in its purest form is a kind of service. Um, the, the love we have for our children, I mean, I, I certainly know this with myself, the love that I have for my children has changed me, and it is, it is, it is distinct from all the other loves I've ever known. Um, but also that the children are hard on marriages, right? And, 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 and for some, also for, you know, for, I think, in, on, a, on a deep, you know, on a more complicated level, if there are problems in the marriage, um, that that can get amplified when children. There is also partly just because you get oh, everybody's tired, right? <laughs> That's right. You know, it's interesting. Um, I, I mean, in a way, there's a lot of mundanity in relationships, and one of the things that romanticism does is to teach us that you know the great love stories should be above the mundane. Mm-hmm. So you know. In none of the great, say, 19th century novels about love, does anyone ever do the laundry? Does anyone yeah. ever, yeah. you know, pick up the crumbs from the kitchen table? Does anyone ever, you know, um, clean the bathroom? Um, it just doesn't happen because it's assumed that what, you know, what makes or breaks love are just feelings, passionate emotions, um, not the kind of day-to-day wear and tear. And yet, of course, when we find ourselves in relationships, it is precisely over these areas that conflicts arise, but we refuse to lend them the necessary prestige. I mean, let's remember that we get angry and frustrated not only when things are difficult, or not principally when things are just difficult. We get angry and frustrated when they're difficult and we don't believe that their difficulty is legitimate or we haven't prepared for the difficulty. Mm. And so therefore, you know, I mean, there's, there's no arguments as vicious as when two people um, are arguing about something, but both of them think the argument is trivial. So they'll say things like, well, I mean, it's just, you know, it's absurd. We're <laughs> arguing over, you know, who should hang up the towels in the bathroom. That's for stupid <laughs> right. people. That has nothing right? to do and, with, yeah. yeah. Right. And, and you know that that's going to be trouble mm-hmm. because they have no respect for the argument they're having. They have no respect for the mm-hmm. things that are making their life difficult, mm-hmm. this couple. And so we need, in a way, one of the sort of, you know, one of the lessons of love is to is to lend a bit of prestige to those issues that you crop up, that crop up in love, like, you know, who does the laundry and on what day. Um, we rush over these decisions and then get very bad tempered uh, about them because we don't see them as part of the, we don't see them as legitimate. We, we don't, you know, mm-hmm. we, we think it's but fine to, yeah. but they are. Mm-hmm. I mean, as you say, they're, they're, there's a lot of life it that is, is the stuff of life, extremely right. mundane. Right. It's the stuff of, of our days. I mean, you know, we, we also talked a minute ago about um, how we, you know, parents, um, Work very. They're very, you know, kind of instinctively, intuitively generous with, um, with their children in terms of being, you know, say, inter- trying to interpret, constantly trying to interpret with maximal generosity what's going on beneath an often difficult surface. But then it's. But then everybody. But but you don't necessarily apply that same generosity to your partner, right? And so I mean, there's this wonderful line from the Course of Love. Um, 
about you know these two parents with children, the tired child inside each of them is furious at how long it has been neglected and in pieces. That's right. And, you know, in a way, um, it, it's, it's so funny. My wife, I can be indiscreet on air. Um, my wife um, used to say to me in the early days of our marriage, she sometimes would say to me things like, um, you know, my father would never have said something like this. I would say something, or you know, so I'm, I'm, you know, it's not my turn to make the tea or something. She go, my father would never have said it. He, you know, he he would always do this for us. Mm-hmm. And then I had to point out that there was really a, uh, you know, she wasn't comparing like with like. That she was comparing um, this right. man, her father, right. as a father, yeah. but not as a lover. Yeah. And you know, in the end, what I wanted to say to her, did end up saying to her, was. In a way, I'm probably behaving exactly like your father, but just not the father that you saw when he was around you. Yeah. Because the, one the of the way things he behaved towards parents, your mother. <laughs> that's right, right. That's right. Exactly. Exactly. And so one of the things we do as parents is to edit mm-hmm. ourselves, mm-hmm. Um, which is lovely in a way for our children, but it gives our children a really unnatural sense of what you can expect from another human being mm. because we're never as nice to probably anyone else on earth as we are to our children. So we, we raise these people. They understand love from the example that we've set. They then go out into the world and find that, lo and behold, men and women that they meet really are quite different from the template of love that they've they've seen. It you know, Oddly, um, the person that they're loving is quite tired. And when they're tired, they get a bit grumpy and they don't speak. And you've tried to you know, ask right, them to cook right, dinner and they didn't. Right. And none of this they've experienced with their parents, maybe. Right. I mean, I'm saying this is, this is the cost <laughs> of good, good parenting. Yes, yes. Um, you know, I'd like to go a slightly different place with all of this. You know, I've been... The things you've been saying, pointing out about how love really works. Uh, that if that if that, that humiliating somebody doesn't actually that people don't learn when they're humiliated. That self righteousness is a is an enemy of love. Um, I I'm thinking a lot right now these days about how. And if we could apply the intelligence we actually have with the experience of love, not the ideal, but the experience of love in our lives, to how we, um, you know, uh, can be as citizens moving forward, where um, there's a lot of behavior in public. I, I mean, I'm speaking for the United States, but I, you know, I think there's there are forms of this in the, in the UK as well. Um, uh, we're kind of acting out in public the way we act out at our worst in in relationships. Um. You know, I, I think that's <laughs> fascinating. I think you're onto something huge and and rather counterintuitive because we mm-hmm. associate the word love with private life. Mm-hmm. We don't associate it with life in the republic, with with civil society. Yes, but I think that a functioning society requires well it requires two things that are again just don't sound very normal, but they require love and politeness. Yes. And, and these sound like very odd virtues to be advocating for the citizen. And we don't really you know, have them at the forefront of our kind of ideas about, about how to live as a citizen. But I think they're, they're absolutely key. By love, I mean a, a capacity to enter imaginatively into the minds of people with whom you don't immediately agree mm. and to look for the more charitable explanations for behavior which doesn't appeal to you and which could seem 
plain wrong. Not just to chuck them immediately in prison uh, or uh, to, you know, haul them up in front of a law court, but to or also... Or just tell or them rather, how stupid they are, right? Just Right, or tell exactly, exactly, because <laughs> we, exactly, we, we're permanently, you know, all sides are, are attempting to show, show how, um, how stupid every other right. side is. Um, and the other thing, of course, is, is politeness, which is an attempt not necessarily to say everything, to mm-hmm. to understand that there is a role for private feelings, which if they were to emerge, would do damage to everyone concerned. Right. And therefore, they should be withheld. We, again, live in this romantic culture where if you feel something, you must express it. If you hate someone, you must tell them immediately. Right. Um, if, you're, if you're angry, uh, off you go. It's bad to bottle up feelings. Well, you know, I don't know. And and both in private life and political life, you know, we, we've got this idea, if we just look at relationships for a second, we've got this idea that keeping a secret is a very bad thing and that, you know, true lovers tell each other everything. Well, again, I think that sometimes to be wholly yourself in the presence of another is a pretty mean thing to be. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a, it's a mm-hmm. treat you should reserve, you know, not for anyone that you really care about because, you know, who we are unvarnished without any... Uh, you know, filters is 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 very challenging, and and not something that we should you know routinely parade. Um, right, right. But we've got this culture of, of kind of self disclosure, and, and and as I say, it spills out into politics as well. The same dynamic goes on of, of like, if I'm not telling you exactly what I think, then you know I may develop a twitch or an illness from not right. you know expunging my feelings. And and you know to which I would say, no, you're not. You're preserving you know the peace and um, you know good nature of the republic, and and it's absolutely what you should be doing. Yes. And and I guess, you know, I, I'm, I've been having this conversation with a lot of people this year. I mean, there's a lot of... Um, the, the truth is, more than ever before, perhaps, in our world, we, we are in relationship, right? We are, in, we are connected to everyone else. And there's a, there's a lot... That's a, that's a fact. Um, their well-being will impact our well-being, um, is of relevance to our well-being. And um, and that of our children, um, but there's a that we have this we have this habit and this capacity in public to, and and it's also we know this we know that our brains work this way, right? To see the other, to see those strangers, those people, those people on the other side, politically, socioeconomically, whatever. Forgetting that in our intimate lives, in our, and in our love lives. You know, in our in our in our circles of family and friends, and in our in our marriages and with our children, um, there are things about the people we love the most who drive us crazy that we do not comprehend, and yet we find ways to be intelligent, right? To be loving, because it gets a better result. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and, and, you know, families are at this kind of testbed of love because, well, we can't entirely quit them. Um, yes. And this is what makes families so fascinating because you're, you're, you're thrown together with a group of people um, who you would never pick if you could simply right. pick on the grounds of, you know, compatibility. And you're forced to seek compatibility. And I think, mm-hmm. you know, we're so obsessed by always finding the perfectly compatible person. The really compatible person for us is not someone who agrees with everything that we say and think. It's someone who... knows how intelligently to disagree. You know, Mm -hmm. compatibility is an achievement of love. It shouldn't be the precondition of love, as we nowadays, in a slightly spoilt way, imagine it must be. Yes, wonderful. 
I, I think this is I I think this is deeply politically relevant, um, and it's uh, totally. And, and yeah. I think you know, the, the, you know, if we just try and explore the word political, political really means you know outside of private space, mm. and you know, the 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 media you take in, the films you see, um, uh, you know, the way the the news is read, etc. All these things are political phenomena, and. Um, we're highly socialized creatures who really take our cues from what is going on around us. And if we see an atmosphere of uh, short tempers, of uh, selfishness, etc., um, you know, they will that will bolster those capacities within ourselves. If we see charity being exercised, if we see good humor, mm. if we see mm. forgiveness on display, uh, again, it will lend support to those sides of ourselves. And... Um, you know, we, we need to take care what we're exposing ourselves to, um, because too much exposure to, you know, the opposite of love, uh, you know, makes us into very um, hostile and, and angry people. Yes, and I think it's also such an important thing to bear in mind um, that the import of our conduct, moment to moment, that that right, that that is is having effects that we can't see. That's right. I mean, you know, we were talking mm-hmm. a, a minute ago about how. Um, very often you notice in relationships because people are, are honest about it in relationships they, they really don't dare in other areas but you know sometimes one of the things that's fascinating in a relationship is how people will have an argument about or get hurt sorry let me start again um, one of the things that's fascinating about relationships is that people will reveal that they've been hurt by incredibly minor things mm-hmm. they'll say things like you know why are you angry with me well you know when you left to go to work I said have a nice day and you went mm-hmm uh, rather than thanks, you know, and and I and I've been angry all day, and actually I'm I'm sort of I don't really want to speak to you because of that word you said, and in a way it sounds ridiculous, but actually we humans are like this. We're just extremely we're far more sensitive than we allow for, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. we need to build a world that recognizes that if somebody goes, you know, mm-hmm, rather than this or thanks rather than yes or you know whatever it is, um, this can ruin our day, and we should think about that as we approach not just our personal relationships, but also our, our social and political relationships. These things yeah. are humiliating. Little things can deeply wound and humiliate. And and also that big things like, right, that, you know, you've, we this has been throughout our conversation that the, the, the hurts that we carry forward in life, the, the pain we feel, which often then feels like anger, coexists with anger, um, you know that what comes out on the surface may look very different, but these are the things that drive bad. What looks like bad behavior, or what looks like puzzling behavior, and that's as true in public life as as it is in private life as well. You know, in a, in a way, one of the things we need is is a kind of emotional translation tool, yes. because what people say to us is often so much at variance with what they mean. So, yeah. you know, you know, classic one is when somebody goes, oh, "I don't really want to see you. Um, you know, I'm a bit bored of you." Um, often, what they might really mean is, um, "Loving you has become too painful for me. You've hurt mm-hmm. me in ways that mm-hmm. I don't know how to deal with. I feel so vulnerable. Mm-hmm. My only recourse is to run away." Um, uh, uh, you know, this was psychologists would, would, would describe as avoidant behavior. Mm-hmm. But then there's the, another kind that gets described as anxious behavior, where someone will go something like, uh, you know, I hate you. You always leave everything in a mess. Uh, why can't you just pull yourself together? W- which would might really mean, I feel you're pulling away from me. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I want to get close, but I don't know how. And so it's terribly poignant that sometimes 
our most horrible statements don't actually mean what we think they mean, what we might suppose they mean. They actually are just the legacies of a desire for tenderness and support that has become incredibly uh, conflicted and yes. hard to admit to because it makes us look so, well, so weak in front of people. You know, let's not forget that one of the things that makes relationships so scary is we need to be weak in front of other people. And yes. most of us are just experts at being pretty strong. You know, we, we've been doing it for years. Yeah. We know how to be strong. What we don't know how to do is to make ourselves safely vulnerable. And so we get, we tend to get very twitchy, uh, you know, preternaturally aggressive, etc. when we're asked to you know, when the moment has come to be weak. Yeah. And I mean, again, I just I feel like I'm overstating this point, but that has its corollaries in, in public life as well. And, you know, I, I feel like there's, there's almost this calling now because the stakes are so high for em- emotional intelligence in public, um, which, of course, we don't, none of us gets perfectly in, in our, in our, in our, um, in our intimate lives, but we, we do know these things about people we love, and they're also true of people we don't know and don't think we love. I mean, you know, many of the great lessons we sort of know. There's that wonderful term the ancient Greeks had, akrasia, which gets translated as weakness of the will, mm-hmm. which is really this phenomenon that, that, that the Greek philosophers discovered, which is when you know what is right, you're committed to doing what is right, but at a key moment you don't do it because the will is weak. And their solution to this, I'm picking this up from Aristotle, their solution to it is broadly speaking art, that the phenomenon we we would nowadays recognize as art or culture, the surrounding culture has to support our will. It has to constantly keep alive the the kind of freshness and relevance of ideas which we assent to in theory but forget about in practice um, and this is the as I say that the help of culture the work of culture mm-hmm. well oh sorry I've got there's something behind the glass uh-huh okay Okay. All right. Okay. All right. Yeah, we'll do. So, so we we're going to. Um, I mean, we have about twenty more minutes, but I and I I want to return a little bit to, um, you know, to to love and sex and eros and all of this. I I have to say, one thing I really love and appreciate and learned from in your writing is your. Um, your reflection on flirting, <laughs> the as a, right. as an art, the art of flirting that it can be something edifying, a pleasurable gift, and that we kind of uh, have internalized these very old um, kind of Puritan ideas that anything like that would be an immediate threat to a relationship, and that that's just not true. And you have this phrase, a good flirt. So would you describe what a good flirt is? Well, you know, if we think about what flirtation is, in in many ways, flirtation is the attempt to awaken somebody else to their attractiveness. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's often taken to mean that that has to be followed by sexual contact or yeah. else it's not real or else it's a deception but but it isn't i mean i think mm-hmm. you know it would be a, such a pity if we had to drive something as important as 
kind of validation and self-acceptance and um, uh, you know a pleasant view of oneself through the gate of rather narrow gate of sex. It doesn't have to go through that gate. Uh, it is possible to to flirt, to reawaken someone to to their value um, mm-hmm. in ways uh, which don't involve actual sexual contact. And, and flirtation is a kind of act of the imagination. And you know what's fun about flirtation is that it often happens between really quite unlikely people. Yeah. Um, you know, two people meet and, you know, maybe they're both with someone or there's a, you know, difference in status or background, etc. And they can find that they're in a little conversation about the weather and um, both parties will recognize there's something a little bit flirtatious going on. Mm-hmm. And it's got really nothing to do with, with sex as such. It's it's just two people delighting in awakening one right. another right. In, to, to the fact that they're right. they're quite nice people yeah. um, and they're quite attractive yeah. and that that's, uh, that's okay. But, you know, we, we, we too often want things to be cut and dry, yeah. um, which is a pity. Yeah. I mean, is it some, I think you also had this one lovely film. It was one of these School of Life films about this. You know, here's, here's you know, a good flirt. Um, you can make these assumptions that this other person, you know, maybe would love to sleep with us, won't sleep with us. And the reason why they won't has nothing to do with any deficiency on our part. But it's also not, as you say, a deception. It's a natural, pleasurable human experience. That's right. I mean, the other thing... Sorry, I don't know if I can speak out of turn or, or it just, just comes to mind. But the other thing that I feel, you know, um, that we get quite wrong in our culture is the whole business of what sex actually is. Mm. You know, because we, we've come kind of f- from a Freudian world. You know, f- Freud has told us that there's a lot more going on in sex than we want to uh, believe and that a lot of it is quite weird and uh, darker than we'd ever mm. want to imagine. And that sex is everywhere in life, even in places where we don't think it is or perhaps should be. Um, But in a way, I've got a sort of different view of this. I think that it's not so much that sex is everywhere. It's that um, psychological dynamics are everywhere, even in sex. And so often we think Mm. of sex as just a sort of pneumatic activity. But really, it's a psychological activity. And if you try to imagine why people are excited by sex... It, it's not so much that it's a pleasurable nerve-ending business. It's it's ultimately that it's about acceptance. If you think about why, you know, why is it exciting to kiss someone for the first time? It's not, you know, it's probably more fun eating an oyster or flossing your teeth or watching TV than kissing. I mean, it's a bit weird. What, what's this <laughs> odd thing we call kissing? It's like sort of right. trying to inflate somebody else's mouth. I mean, it's just odd. <laughs> yet, nevertheless, we like it, not uh-huh. because of its physical uh, feeling, but because of what it means, the meaning yeah. we, we infuse. And the meaning we infuse into it is I accept you and Mm. I accept you in a way that is incredibly intimate and that would be quite revolting with anyone else. I'm (laughs) allowing you into my private space as a way of signaling Mm. I like you. Mm. And what really, we we call it getting turned on, but what we really, uh, as it were, excited by is that someone accepts us Mm. with remarkable, Mm. um, you know, in all our... delight in us. Right. It takes delight in us. And that's what's exciting about it. And you can look at all sorts of sexual practices as basically um, the reason why they're exciting is because they are um, 
in, in their varied ways, forms of radical acceptance mm -hmm. of, uh, of, of one person by another, which doesn't exist in other areas. So they, in other words, sex is continuous mm -hmm. with a lot of things that we're interested in outside of the bedroom. Mm -hmm. um, and I think we've slightly compartmentalized it as a, a sort of a bizarre activity where we lose our minds and, and, and forget that we care about anything that we'd care anywhere else. It's not true. As mm -hmm. I say, the, the sexual impulse is in many ways continuous. Yeah, and you and you you say that flirting, you know, is is one way to um, to experience in the course of ordinary life in a way that's completely non-threatening to whatever your commitments are. That what is what is enjoyable about sex? It's not necessarily the act itself. The fact that we are sexual beings. That's right. Mm. That's right. Mm. And and you know, but we feel often conflicted about it. I yeah. shouldn't be. I shouldn't be flirting. I can't flirt, etc. So there's a lot of a lot of fear of. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of fear of slippery slopes. Um, yes. You know, in many situations, we can we can hang on on the slippery slope. It's okay. We've you know we've got tools to hang on in there. Yeah, I I, I want to know. I don't want to let you go before asking what you think about what's your view of online dating because this is a a new way that so many people, perhaps most people, uh, moving forward are meeting, um, are engaging this romantic side of themselves. Look, I mean, at one level, um, online dating promises to um, open up something absolutely wonderful, which is a more logical way of getting together with someone. Um, the sort of dream is that the secrets of our soul and the secrets of somebody else's soul will be sort of downloaded onto a computer and that we will find the best possible match for who we are. Because the old way, which is that you might bump into somebody at a bar or at a party, is obviously flawed from uh, lots of ways. So, uh, in other words, there's something very nice, rational, and you, know, you have to approve of it. Um, the darker side of online dating is that it encourages the idea that that a good relationship must mean a conflict-free relationship and therefore any relationship which has conflict in it, which has unhappiness and areas of tension in it, is wrong and can be terminated because we have this wonderful backup, which is alternatives. We can swipe, start swiping through some other people um, quite soon. And so therefore it makes, it, it makes us uh, impatient uh, and impatience can be a real enemy of, of long-term relationships. So. Mm. Like any tool, it's um, it's got its pluses and minuses and has to be used uh, correctly. And I think what I mean by correctly is it has to broaden the pool of people from which we're choosing our lovers while not giving us the illusion that there is such a thing as a perfect human being. Right. So then you're back to the, the basic the basic truth, the darker truth about love. Um, also, also that that what online dating does it is introduces you to people, but then as really the whole whole thrust of your thinking is it's that that, that loving is really what comes next, right? It's what comes that's after right. the and, meeting. Know, that's right. Silicon Valley has been incredibly interested in getting us to that first stage of mm -hmm. meeting the person, and you know mm -hmm. that's great. But the next stage is has been abandoned. Um, mm -hmm. You know, where is the app that will tell you how to read? you know, how to interpret somebody else's confused signals of distress or that will remind you at a certain point to, you know, look charitably upon, you know, someone's behavior because you remember their childhood, etc. Mm -hmm. um, so we have a long way to go. Our, our technology is still, look, we're still 
it sounds odd because we it's one of the sort of narcissisms of our time that we think we're living late on in the history of the world and we, we think we're sort of you know we're, we're right. latecomers to the to right. the party that's been we're still at the very beginning of understanding ourselves as uh, you know human emotional creatures um we're still you know taking our first baby steps in in the understanding of love and we need a lot of compassion for ourselves. And no mm. wonder we make horrific mistakes um, you know, pretty much all the time. Uh, we're not collecting our knowledge in the way it should be collected. We're not transmitting that knowledge uh, in the way that other disciplines like you know, bioengineering collect their knowledge. We're not, there's no system of, of knowledge transfer when it comes to, uh, uh, to relationships. Um, and there's very little public awareness of, and, and, and cultural awareness right. of the challenges of love. So, you know, of course, the, the, the norm is we're going to get this wrong. Um, you know, substantially wrong, not just inevitably, you know, a little bit wrong, but but you know, properly and avoidably wrong. Um, and uh, as I say, yeah, I, I think a, a certain compassion, as well as you know, more political in the in the broad sense, engagement with some of the issues um, that are responsible for uh, kind of shielding us from. Um, accessing the knowledge that is out there about mm. how to run a relationship, how to love. We need an education in love and we need to be kind enough to ourselves to to know how to find it, realize we need it and get it for ourselves. Mm. I think a lot about the fact that we, um, we support people, peop, other people we love, our family and friends in being present at the vows, right? Again, at that very beginning, we're there. We celebrate that beginning. Um, I, I, I suspect that in days when there were extended families, but you know, I may be romanticizing the idea of extended families. Marriages were held by a larger network of relationships. I don't know if that's true. I'm sure some of those networks were dysfunctional. I wonder. I love what you just said about. Um, we need we need to, to take this more seriously and become educated about love. I, I wonder if there's a role. I mean, you're at an age now, I think, where a lot of people are getting divorces, right? In your forties, um, probably a sure. lot of people you know. Um, you, and you I know, wonder it, what our role is to be with each other's marriages or with each other's long-term love. And I think we don't. We have no. We also have no training in that or no instincts in that. That's a fascinating idea because, you know, very much the spirit of our times, and it's been going for a long while, is to, is to try and say that marriage is unnecessary um, mm -hmm. and that, um, you know, the whole thing is so difficult, so costly. What's the point of this? Um, who needs it? it? It makes love more difficult. Um, you know, if I wanted to play devil's advocate and, and defend marriage, and you know, I don't want to get into the culture wars. I don't think it's got anything to do with that. Um, but if you wanted to mount a kind of philosophical defense of marriage, its difficulty um, is not incidental. The fact that once you marry, when you marry, you invite you know a hundred of your uh, friends, and they give you expensive, quite expensive <laughs> presents that they've really had to spend a lot of money on, and a lot of you know, um, it's all generating massive embarrassment for the moment that you'd call up and go, you know, despite the television and the microwave, we're splitting up. You know, um, the point is, you know, and your aunt, she flew halfway around the world, she bought an expensive airline ticket, etc. You need that elderly aunt because it's going to be terribly embarrassing to call mm -hmm. her up and go, despite mm -hmm. the coffee maker that you bought in the trip you took from San Francisco, we're, we're quitting. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that that embarrassment 
can, and again, we need to be careful here, but can um, be an important conduit to reserves of patience, of imagination, of intelligence that we can bring to bear on a relationship before we simply blow it up. Mm. And therefore, it's not a coincidence that it can be quite hard to get out of marriages. There's a role, you know, marriage is in a way a willing shackling of two people to one another. You throw away the key and you cage yourself. You willingly do this. Mm. Why? Because you're aware that certain forms of maturity, certain forms of growth are only available to you if you can't run away the first moment when things get difficult. Mm. And I think that you know, no. I mean, most. Mar- I hope I'm not speaking just purely autobiographically. You, you'll tell me, or your listeners okay. will tell me. But you know, most marriages, even quite good ones, uh, probably have at least one time a week when one's just dying to run away, mm-hmm. and you know, can't imagine why one's ever ended up in this situation. But you know, just as important as that feeling is, the other feeling that's important is the thought of, oh my God, well, how would I set about unchaining myself? Um, and the fact it's quite hard gives a more mature and more emotionally resilient part of the mind time to organize itself and think, okay, is there another way? Might we do something? And that's how we grow. You know, mm-hmm. um, yeah, that's how we that's how we keep making an effort. Mm-hmm. Uh, if it were too easy, well, you know, we might not. I um, happened to see your tweet uh, at the end of 2016 when that when the New York Times released its um, most read articles of the year <laughs> and your why you will marry the wrong person was number one which is really extraordinary I mean what you know the the most read article in a year of the brexit vote the presidential election war refugee crisis I wonder what that tells you about us as a species um, it, look, it was deeply fascinating and, and quite extraordinary. And apparently it was first by a long way. I mean, it, it's just <laughs> peculiar. Yes. Um, and and I think that, um, look, first of all, it tells us that we have an enormous um, loneliness around our difficulties. Mm. Um, you know, one could write a follow-on piece, I may or may not, you know, called Why You Will Get Into the Wrong Job, which would probably score quite highly too. Mm-hmm. And, you know, why you'll have the wrong child and why you'll go on the wrong vacation and why your body will be the wrong shape um, and why you'll think you live in the wrong country, etc. And, you know, in a way we need solace for the sense that we have gone wrong in an area, whatever it may be, that where perfection was possible. And anyone who comes along and says, you know, um, it's normal that you are suffering. Life is suffering. Um, is doing a quite unusual thing in our culture, which is so much about optimism. Mm. You know, let's remember that Buddhism starts with the idea, literally, the statement "life is suffering." Yeah. Um, you know, Judaism and Christianity both have it as a bedrock: the idea that man is imperfect, a sinner is broken. Right? You know, strip away the theology from it. Really, what it's saying is, you know. We're imperfect beings. And um, that is, it sounds grim. It is, in fact, enormously consoling and alleviating and helpful in a culture which is oppressive in its demands for mm. uh, for perfection. So, you know, I, I think a certain kind of pessimistic realism, which is totally compatible with hope, totally compatible with laughter, good humor, um, a sense of fun. It's not, it doesn't have to be That's how comedy and tragedy um, belong together. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. So, you know, I'm a great fan of gallows humor. I mean, we're all, we're all on the way to the gallows in one way or another. And, um, 
you know we can we we can hug and give each other laughs and um, mm. uh, point out the more pleasant sides as we as we head towards the scaffold. <laughs> That may be your last word. I just want to ask you, we, we spoke, when we first began to speak about On Love, which you wrote, I think, which was published when you were 23 in the late 90s. You've now been married for over a dozen years. And, you know, what what did you really not know? I mean, and that book was so wise. And in fact, that book that you published when you were 23, On Love, really presented a lot of the themes you've carried forward in time. But I do wonder, like, what, what you really did not know, what you've learned, what you continue to learn about love um, at this that, stage in your life. That's such a good question. And it'll make mm. the 23-year-old me sound more stupid than he was. Mm. But I genuinely thought at that time that if I, and people in general, met the right person, there would be no problem. Um, that the problems in love are the result of being with people who are, in one way or another, defective. Mm. And, you know, in 2002, um, this belief was severely tested in that I met someone who was really absolutely wonderful uh, in every way. And um, through much effort, I pursued her and eventually married her um, and discovered something very surprising. She was great in a million ways. She was very right. And yet, oddly, there were all sorts of problems. Um, and I think it's been, you know, the path that I've been on to realize that those problems had nothing to do with her being a deficient person, or indeed with me being a horribly deficient person. They were to do with the challenges of being a human being, trying to relate to another human being in a loving relationship, that I was encountering some endemic issues um, that every couple, however well-matched, and there is no such thing as a perfect match, but yeah. however well-matched, um, every couple will encounter these problems. And it, it made me develop a new ideology of love, which, you know, what separates the course uh, on love, my first book, from the course of love, my latest book, apart from the big time span, is a new idea that love is something we have to learn and we can make progress with, and that it's not just an enthusiasm, it's a skill, and it requires forbearance, generosity, imagination, and a million things besides. Um, and we must fiercely resist the idea that true love must mean uh, conflict-free love, that the course of mm. true love is smooth. It's not. The course of true love is rocky and bumpy at the best of times. Um, that's the best we can manage as the creatures we are. It's nothing, no fault of mine or no fault of yours. It's to do with being human. And the more generous we can be towards that flawed humanity, the better chance we'll have of doing the true hard work of love. Hmm. Well, I, I, what I know is it's going to be really hard to edit this. It's been completely delightful. It's such an important subject. And um, I'm just, I'm thrilled to speak with you again. And I'm going to be so happy to put this on the air. Well, it's always a thrill for me, and I love what you do. I love what your team does, and um, you're you're a giant force for good in the world, well, in a troubled thank, world. Thank so, you. <laughs> thank you so much. It's so such much. a pleasure for me. Yeah, good. All right, wonderful. Okay. Thank you, and we'll thank be you in, so much. We'll, we'll send you all the details about when this is going up and all that. Oh, that would be great, and yeah. I'll, I'll push We'd it along as well. We'd love for you well. to do that. Okay, all right, bye-bye. Yeah. Thank you. Okay, thank yeah. you. Bye-bye from London. Bye-bye. <laughs> Bye.